you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real Noah would you be unsettled if I introduced today's program by saying that it's a podcast for very special children I don't think so because it's that's accurate, right? I, I would agree. Are you are you recording right now, or is this just a? This is oh yeah. This we've begun. Were you not ready? <laughs> We're still going. I'm not cutting this out. Uh, welcome, one and all, to Be Real Movie Reviewing, Reappraising, and Genre Hopping Podcast uh, here on the Playlist Podcast Network. We are so psyched to be here at what has to be I don't know the hottest time in American history um, to talk about. Some worlds, some worlds that were constructed by fanciful adults to be inherited by slash torture children. We're, the reason we've done this is not, <laughs> it's not our own personal interest. I'm Chancellor Piper, by the way. Um, and I'm Noah Ballard. It's because Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is 50 years old. The OG one, of course. Not, not Charlie and the Chocolate Factory from Tim Burton. We're not going to talk about that one. Nope. I'm surprised they even brought it up now. Um, and in light of this Wonkaversary, we picked a couple other films that we think fall in this weird category of adult overlords of these fantastical worlds. Yes. We're also going to do 1986's Labyrinth and 2015's Tomorrowland. Yes. It's, uh, hey kid, come check out my puzzle box house. Yeah. World. Don't worry. It's not, it's not weird. Just come on. Just come on. Just check it out. <laughs> solve the puzzle to defeat me. Solve the puzzle to replace me. Solve the puzzle to achieve your wildest dreams, which are also mine. Yeah. No, now, I, do, are, go ahead, please. Now, are these films uh, with which you have like a childhood connection? Uh, probably not yeah, tomorrow because it, it came out six years ago. But I feel like most people in my orbit have at least... Uh, some affiliation with Willy Wonka and then some have like kind of a perverse interest in Labyrinth. Uh, and then it was part of like the discourse when Bowie died a couple years ago as well about as his acting. Yeah. About how this was maybe like a, an undiscovered masterpiece or worthy of reappraisal and lo, three years later, <laughs> here we are. We can take a hint. Um, yeah. Willy Wonka 71. I watched all the time. It was a, a very commonly put on movie. I had never seen Labyrinth and I had never seen Tomorrowland. You? Wow, ditto. Yeah, same thing for me. Okay, great. I love it when our but yeah, I definitely owned same. Willy Wonka on DVD. Nice. Good. Um, yeah, it's of course based on the the Roald Dahl novel. Um, actually, before I start saying like what things are based on when it comes to individual movies, no, you got any overarching thoughts? <laughs> this category well yeah these movies are so interesting because they're all this like bizarre 
commentary on some form of like mentorship or coming of age. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see how Hollywood handles that kind of stuff. And then how movies like this, you know, like Willy Wonka and Labyrinth are at least both like cults, huge movies. And then Tomorrowland from, you know, this current generation, like maybe didn't have that same whatever for whatever reason. Um, And it is interesting because like there are movies that interrogate, I would say, a fairly taboo subject matter in today's discourse of like what older kind of creepy people can teach younger innocent people about their dreams. And, you know, I think that that it's one of these movies and it's why it's interesting that we break these things up by the categories that we do, but it it speaks to, I think this, this Hollywood notion that like, you know, the movies are going to like, you know, teach us something, you know, it, they all feel very much like they came from this discourse of, Oh, sometimes you kind of have to follow the mysterious stranger into the woods to like gain some sort of perspective on life. And like in retrospect, you know, kind of a kind of a fucked up place to start your motion picture. Sure. Well, this is what I kept thinking about is I feel like in not an indicting way necessarily, but these are movies that seem to tell on themselves in terms of people who would fashion themselves children's writers and children's entertainers and just how like weird those people including Roald Dahl uh tend to be um and I, and just the very I think that the some of the creepiness that you see in these films um which I will I will not write any of them off for for that alone it's just it's sort of like an inherently creepy act to be that person you know what I mean if you if you espouse that you're the one to craft entertainment for children, you somehow understand something about what that experience is to imprint on them, scar them maybe, show them the world as you wanted it to be as a as a writer, as a director, which is exactly what Wonka and the Goblin King and whatever Hugh Laurie's character's name in Tomorrowland Oh, Governor is. Nix? Thank you for that. Um, no, seriously, I do thank you. I wasn't going to come up with that. Um... But you know, I, I guess just, my go ahead. Go ahead. I guess my point though is that you could call any of these movies like the awesome time I have at Neverland Ranch or something. Yeah. You know, it's the same kind of like if you look at if there were a contemporary analog to any of these characters, I mean Goblin King aside, uh, of any of these characters in modern whatever, it's like Wonka like is a is a crazy person uh, and and a abusive. You know, and then, I mean, even like the Elon Musk, uh, George Clooney guy in Tomorrowland is still like, you know, he's he's traumatizing this person. So she becomes on his team. I know. Same thing with same thing with the Goblin King, but more on the nose, though. I know what you're saying, but I'm saying my I think my view is wider, which is like when you're making a movie like this, it has to be this way. You know, I was thinking about, um, you know, even someone like Fred Rogers, arguably as saintly as it gets. I remember being a little kid and the King Friday world of make believe segments and being so keenly aware that somebody's like thumb was on the scale of this world that I was living in this place that this nice man in this nice sweater was like, you'll be safe here. And I wasn't like creeped out by it, but like the fact of the matter is that's like one of the weird things about being a parent or being a mentor. It's like in some way you, you have got to, 
you are going to, whether you want to or not, like commandeer this child's vision and they're going to look back on it and think at best, oh, weird, I had no control over that. And at worst, like, I'm scarred by that. Like the weirdest line in Willy Wonka that the first time was like, oh, this, I thought it might like borderline ruin the movie, but actually I think it's just the movie telling on itself is at the end, we're in the glass elevator and Wonka's like, I couldn't have an adult do it because they'd want to do it their way. I needed a kid because they do it my way, Charlie. And exactly. it's very it honest. Hand. It's very honest. Well, I think that parenting is read is there too, but I also think especially Willy Wonka, you know, the read is more the seductiveness of celebrity like Wonka like the mm. reason people want to go there is because they want to be adjacent to this famous genius and to be let in presumably onto the secrets of his success how does it make you feel to be the first golden ticket finder I'm gonna Mike the country wants to hear from you the world is waiting can't you shut up I'm busy you're a rotten mean father you never give me anything I want I won't go to school till I have it Violet call it Open it, Charlie. Let's see that golden ticket. Wouldn't that be fantastic? It's not fair to raise his hopes. Never mind. Go on, open it, Charlie. I want to see that gold. Stop it, Dad. I've got the same chance as anybody else, haven't I? I never dreamed that I would climb over the moon in ecstasy, but nevertheless, it's there that I'm shortly about to be. Because I've got a golden ticket. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, 1971. A poor but hopeful boy seeks one of the five coveted golden tickets that will send him on a tour of Willy Wonka's mysterious chocolate factory. That about does it. Yeah, absolutely. Charlie Bucket, he's our guy. Charlie Bucket! (laughs) Played by Peter Ostrom. This is is his only screen credit. He is a... I don't, I don't think he's a great actor, but a cute, winning little kid. I think he does the job just fine. I'm getting too high. <laughs> You're right. Your voice is soaring dangerously close to that fan, Peter. Can we talk about this movie's sense of place? Yeah. I was baffled by where Charlie is supposed to live. Not in like a, I want to be... Uh, picky bastard about realism kind of thing but he seems to live in northern a ge- europe <laughs> in a ger- <laughs> in a german town a small german town this movie was shot in munich and other parts of bavaria where everyone is it's 50 english and 50 percent american except for <laughs> right. a couple german people the guy he works for at the newsstand is german uh, Mr. Kopeck. <laughs> and nobody one of the strange things about this movie that I that I that I like is um nobody ever makes mention of the fact that like the fifth golden ticket winner lives in the town where the chocolate factory yeah, is. Yes. The chocolate factory is on his way home from work. That seems really important. Nobody mentions it once. No. It is incredibly lucky that yeah, you'd think they wouldn't. They would intentionally not uh, have the ticket delivered to that town. But it, it almost seemed like he had been doing, you know, uh, 
like intelligence work on all the people so they would get the ticket. Uh, Because I also think it's interesting. I mean, if you want to poke holes at the sense of realism as portrayed by Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I just said I didn't want to do that, but go ahead. Why is it only kids who get the ticket? You know, it seems like just like the teacher and everyone else in the adult world is even the, the, the news announcer is like pissed that he didn't find it himself. Yeah. Also, That's parenthetically, it. only white children. Uh, the only person of color who gets anywhere near going to the chocolate factory Scales. is a liar and a fraud. <laughs> yeah. So our winners come from America, America, England, Germany and fake Germany. Right. And not Paraguay. Not Paraguay. That guy lied. Well, he wasn't a kid. Of course he lied. Come yeah, now. of course. <laughs> this is the most re- It was pretty funny to like imply that it was like a some sort of prince of a like a shady sort of banana republic or something that had Right. <laughs> that it like somehow got his way into this thing. Yeah. Let me jump right in here. One of the things I think I've never appreciated about this movie, which is on HBO Max, by the way, if you're looking to stream it. You have not appreciated it? One of the things I have not previously appreciated as much as it deserves is um, this movie is like structured and mapped pretty brilliantly, I think. Sure. Um, I, I didn't remember that it's like the climb up through the five kids is basically find a winner media satire sketch find a winner media satire sketch and so it's like one two three four five go to the chocolate factory five four three two one and instead of instead of rye ironic sketches they're split up by the oompa loompa songs Um, yeah it's the introduction and then the death of each child is the narrative yeah i would argue though that some of the sketches are not just media uh satires they're like 20th century like narrative like Hollywood tropes too like the idea of like that like not um Robert Mitchum like talking to the woman whose husband's been kidnapped because of the Wonka bars oh yeah like the murder she wrote ransom thing yes like that's funny too that like those are the things popping up but I was also finding it like so fascinating that this movie presupposes like this you know, this motto culture that exists where the oh, whole yeah. world has dropped everything that they're doing to find these Wonka, these golden tickets and these Wonka bars. Of course. Well, I really think it's smart the way that the music is lined up with it, too. You know, I think the problem with a lot of these children's films is that there's just too much music and it kind of interrupts the flow of it. Whereas this one is essentially just five songs and then when they get to the actual factory it's sort of like the oompa loompa and reprise yeah you know there's no real more there's no more music that's added to it and the focus can be on the outrageous visuals right right um what's your favorite like the reverse quibble with la la land yeah i've never heard you make the case before that a musical should have has the has the right amount of music by not having much this is a real turn but they're um, bangers. I think front oh to back. God. What's your what's your favorite? My favorite of these bangers is of course The Candyman. Oh, the opening song. No, it's not my favorite, but I, I mean that song's great. Like it just right away, kids are out of school, they run over the guys like let's sing a song about Willy Wonka. My 
who from whom I buy wholesale candy every day. <laughs> yes. Well, um, and it's an interesting way to bring you into the world because it's sort of preaching the propaganda of this like amazing man who yeah. can do anything he wants. And he's he's the proof that capitalism works. It's a North Korea song. Who can make the sun rise? <laughs> Kim Jong-un. <laughs> um, the best song, though, uh, is Pure Imagination, in my opinion. That's, yeah, that's the best, I would say, written song. I think, in retrospect, my favorite is uh, I've Got a Golden Ticket when uh, Grandpa Joe gets out of bed and Jack Albertson delivers this incredibly moving performance uh, well, of this song. Uh, moving Despite, literally, too. He hasn't moved, mostly hasn't been out of bed in yeah, 20 what's years. What's left of his non atrophied muscles carry him around this one bedroom house. Oh, my uh, God. While he tries to out sing Peter Ostrom, who why didn't they just get somebody else to sing? <laughs> They've like clearly dubbed over uh, uh, Mr. Slugworth. Yes, but like, why not dub over Peter Ostrom's singing? What do you that think would is just be my production note going on with Charlie's completely mute? German grandparents, Josephine and George, who are played by Franzika Liebing and Ernst Ziegler. What's they up with them? I agree with some stuff. I don't know that they're totally mute. Are we in Germany? This movie well, is I don't know why that's your... Why is that this your sticking point here? All right. Um, We're in a, the, like a cartoon world. It's like, can, hey, Arnold, is it in New York? We don't know. swim in a it's chocolate an river, you'd sink. Um, right. Yeah. You think uh, he would have told them. So my two quibbles are you think he would have told them ahead of time that you can't swim in the chocolate river. He said you can eat almost anything in this room. Mm-hmm. I guess the almost is the chocolate river and the bricks. <laughs> it's a hard um, almost. And then the other thing, too, is that in the montages of the kids being or finding the tickets, like you'd think that Mr. Slugworth would wait until after the cameras had cut before he whispers his illicit plan into their ears. I love that because Gunter Meisner, German, he um his like acting the way he's sort of like, ah, oh, come here. And every kid is like, who's this? Okay, I'll listen. <laughs> it's really uh like overdone in this very loud, obvious way that I enjoy every single time it happens. Um, right. But there's also a funny irony of that, too, of like, hey, kid, like watching this movie, don't trust the shady stranger who's trying to get you to do something. Instead, trust the shady stranger who's trying to get you to do something. (laughs) The one in the more colorful suit. Yeah, the one with the cane who does the somersaults. Let's talk about that. Uh, Gene Wilder is unbelievable in this movie. He's incredible. He is. What I realized is that like he is threading a needle essentially of his own making where everything he does is so full of love and so contemptuous from millisecond to millisecond, like toggling back and forth. It really should not work. I don't think, I cannot think of anyone else who can pull off that sense of like those things being contained in the same person. I mean, I remember being terrified as a kid, the, um, you know, the bipolar distance between you lose and, Charlie, you've done it. <laughs> like, it's just like, what's happening? And it's all yeah. just something Gene Wilder can embody. 
Right, because he does have that contrast between those two poles. But I also think Gene Wilder's really good at like buying his own bullshit. Yeah, like you never think that Wonka thinks that he's a fraud at any moment. Like that's what you need at the center of I think all of these stories is this guy who like knows he knows the answer. You know, right. maybe his means are a little bit whatever, but his ends are hopefully going to justify them. Right. Yes. Um, and I think the movie is more, one of the things I, that I, I think carries it is the movie is a little more in tune with how weird he is from an adult set of eyes. Like just the way that pure imagination is directed as a kid. Of course, I remember that song being, you know, two minutes and 55 seconds of the kids eating the jelly bean mushrooms and stuff. That song is 70% focused on Willy Wonka. And the way that he allows and disallows them down the stairs and that beautiful, memorable little dance. And by the end, he's just singing to himself, essentially being like, if you want to view paradise, it's important to break with reality. (laughs) And you're just like staring into his eyes. Like he's admitting to you how uh, insular his world is in a weird way. Right. Well, it's also like the story. I mean, if you look at what he's doing in his narrative, here's this like successful business mogul who's just like looking for someone wholesome to take over parenthetically because like he did everything he set out to do and didn't feel better. So it's kind of also his final trip through the factory of seeing all the stuff that he's done. It's a great point. And what his legacy will be. So I think there is something really kind of bittersweet about, you know, when he's walking around and just like kicking things that he's kicked a thousand times before and like drinking the, the teacup like he has, you know, over and over again with, you know, this is it. Like, like take it in, Willie. Um, I really love that. And I think it adds extra resonance to, the end when you see his office and just how other than the fact that there's weird have things everywhere you're like this is just a ugly british office from 1971 does this guy at the have to do clerical work at the end of this and that's yeah, the too. Is doing some of the accounting too nope nope it seems not um yeah but i just this this movie doesn't work at all without gene wilder and he's not it's, even in it for the first 46 minutes. I know. Well, it's such a good premise leading up to it. And I think it's so well done that kind of, I don't know, what you sort of poke at as the the lack of realism or that's, coherence of the okay. world or something. I think it's like, that's what's so interesting about it is how much fun they're having with, you know, how cynical and craven the world is. And then we introduce, you know this kind of Hannibal Lecter that we've been talking about the whole time. Uh, And then, yeah, getting into, I guess getting into what is weirder. Like, is it weirder? And we can talk about this. I think we have to. Is it weirder that, you know, Willy Wonka has a car that runs on Coca-Cola or is it weirder that this kid watches or eats every single meal in front of the television? Right. You know, is it... Is it weirder that he's invented a three-course meal piece of gum or that this girl never stops eating candy? You know? Right. This movie is in a sort of like, um, in the Patty Chayefsky, like, network 70s me generation tradition. Yes. It's, it's leveraging 
all that is bad and selfish in the real world against someone who would be like, Willy Wonka's weird. It's like, you think Willy Wonka's weird? <laughs> Motherfucker, look at this. Right. Um, yeah, you're but right. Willy Wonka is also, you know, this movie's kind of like Seven. You know, it takes people committing <laughs> sins and then it like punishes them for those sins in grisly ways. Yeah, it, um, I don't know. It, it's sort of, Anti, I don't like the look of it. It's anti-child in a way. It's anti-child. But, but it's... Well, do we think this movie is sort of mean to fat people? Um, well, yeah. I think it may be over the line. Sure. That's understandable. Um, I think it's... it's more the, the morality parables that it tells every time one of the kids passes away... Is both obvious yeah. and like kind of reductive, I would say. Right. It like you run a fucking candy factory. Don't judge Violet and Augustus. Come on. Exactly. <laughs> It'd be like you know they're they're you know the uh, the gun factory talking about school shootings or something. It's like you yeah. are making the thing that these kids are addicted to. Just because Charlie metabolizes the chocolate at a higher rate doesn't make him. He's just too f- poor. That's the whole point. He's too poor to <laughs> okay. afford his right. unaffordable. He can only buy two of them. He can't even do the. The teacher can't even do the percentage. He buys so few candy bars. Two. I can't do two. <laughs> it's like, can't you? You're an awful math teacher. You... It becomes pretty obvious in that scene that the math teacher doesn't know how to do percentages. <laughs> you can only do them if they're that much higher than zero. Um. Yeah. Well, I think if we're getting on trying to get on the movie's page again, it's saying that when children become like adults, when they experience the adult world this way, they they're done for. Cuz like ev- you know, everybody you meet is just a a cartoon um carbon copy of of the parent who's also on the tour. Who's your favorite like evil wicked kid? I Cannot believe through my current set of eyeballs how much Julie Don Cole as Veruca is going for it from the moment she arrives on screen. As a, I mean, as a kid, you're like, Veruca is just the biggest piece of shit. But when I watch it, it's like, <laughs> it's because this child actor is just throwing 120 miles an hour. Like, right. the very first moment you see her... Um, you know, I want it now is basically every other line out of her mouth and she like doesn't quit. She's also she's also so good that she gets her own musical number. Nobody else gets that shit. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's a great song too. Uh um, yeah. and Roy Kinnear like matches her in a really funny they've got such a good chemistry. Roy Kinnear like kind of reminds me of um what's his name on the on the late late show? Um uh, James Corden. Oh. And then I think it's so funny how like they're the in the one scene where the mom's there, she's just like children, like you have to tend them like a garden or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, Julie Don Cole has this great moment in the middle of I Want It Now where she kind of like realizes she's out of control and then she's like, And I want to host parties. And she kind of like puts on this adult thing for a second before it spirals again into like Right. Or that dark pit that she hits with uh She's like very like lilting with her voice and then she goes, I'm going to scream. I want 
city with roomfuls of laughter. Ten thousand tons of ice cream. And if I don't get the things I am after, I'm going to scream. She's awesome. It's really impressive. She's really, really good. That's really. I'm glad that you brought this. So that's that's your favorite for sure. Um, I think Mike TV like sort of has a you know vulture sensibility to him where he's like very good with like online magazine yeah that's right like constantly being like self-referential to other media and stuff like i think he'd do really well you know as one of these like talking head doc people uh about the state of culture and like how into stuff he was so i think i think mike tv needs a reappraisal in terms of someone who's just like into the into the medium yeah he'd be a good podcaster Exactly. I bet Mike T would have a killer podcast. Right. Um, It'd be a little shrill, but it's fine. Not to your 12, son. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that's one of the best jokes in the movie is when Mike TV is disappointed that he can't get a firearm and the camera pans to his father and goes, not to your 12, son. Oh, my God. I think my favorite line is, uh, is the Cronkite analog. Uh, and you know how much I love newscaster humor where he's just kind of looking down the barrel of America's hearts and he's like, though we cannot help but envy the final ticket finder and we might be bitter at our own losing, we must remember (laughs) there are many, many more important things. Offhand, I can't think of what they are, but I'm sure there must be something. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's great. Fun fact, uh, I think part of that... uh, media literacy slash skewering in the first um in the ascent of act one is uh mel stewart our director who this is by far his most major film i hadn't even heard of anything else he'd done but his very first film was an oscar nominated uh doc called four days in november about the kennedy assassination and i was like this guy has watched a lot of tv news so that's why this movie is like this yeah did you get a sense of what Roald Dahl's objections to the film were at all um, there's like a certain earnestness to it that maybe at the end, I, I don't know. I, I was unfamiliar that he had big gripes. I think he, yeah, like with most doll adaptations, he's like, it wasn't fucked up enough. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I don't know. I think the end is pretty weird. The end is pretty weird. Uh, if you look at it through an adult lens, you know, I almost think that Willy Wonka is going to kill himself at the end. Like the last button that he hasn't pushed is suicide. Uh, he has launched himself, Grandpa Joe and Charlie into space against their own will. Um, so they can go yeah, without like, informing them otherwise. Yeah. So they can go like, according to Charlie in the Great Glass Elevator, like go battle with vermicious canids on a space station. I couldn't believe that's what happened in Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. That sounds stupid as hell, Roald. What are you doing? Terrible sequel. Yeah, and he also just like seemed in a bad mood that like the movie tried to be a movie. He's like, what's with all these jokes and songs? It's like, okay. <laughs> that's amazing. Why don't well, you I was en- telling you before we recorded, though, that like what I find so fascinating about this movie is that it was like the first real dig your teeth into something assignment that the two writers of the songwriters from Goldfinger. Uh, 
he's he loves gold he loves only gold um did after that the success of that movie both as like the movie song uh, and also like as a uh, bona fide hit that's leslie bercuzzi and anthony newley that's right nice noah my friend you got anything else you want to talk about or should we rate willy wonka and the chocolate factory on Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, Horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. Uh, to me, an unimpeachable good good. I think that it's one of those movies where you may find that there are like truly bizarre things and inflections that were just completely in the background to you as a kid that are now in the foreground. Um, but I think almost every single one of them makes it more interesting. Even the end, the, the end where I'm like cringing, cringing like in a clench at how awkward it is when Willy Wonka is like, you're my, chi- you're my successor slash child slave. Isn't that great? I, I, I do feel like that is the... <laughs> I think the movie is commenting on this weird idol that it's like, you know, put up. Um, so everything weird about it, I think just makes it better as I'm going to give it a good, good for sure. Yeah. I would give it a good, good despite everything chance just said. Uh, that's what I think is the icky part of this movie. Sure. Uh, no, I, I think the, the songs really hold up the acting for the most part from a lot of child actors, like is done in a key that makes it ultimately more of an adult film, which I think is appreciated more not watching this as a kid. Um, but yeah, and I think it has some really funny things to say about capitalism and, you know, that sort of corporate way of thinking where it's all, you know, seeing just like the waste of all those chocolate bars, like almost being used. It almost reminded me of that episode of succession where, you know the that smell has been in the in the house, so they throw away like thousands of dollars worth of seafood because it's just been next to it. Right. You know that's the kind of thing where it's just like this is just what rich people do, and like who cares about the cost? And there's some funny images of that. Um, yeah, it's a wise movie. Good, good. Sweet. Um. No one knows where we are going, but where are we going next, Noah? There's no earthly way of knowing. Oh, that's what I meant. Yeah. But the rowers keep on rowing. I mean, I don't feel that that's not an adequate way to describe 1986's Labyrinth, but there it is. I'm not sure after 25 drafts of the script that they had a great idea of where they were going in 86's Labyrinth. You'd think if 
you're on draft 24 and you're like, huh, this doesn't make a lick of sense. You'd maybe just like come up with another idea that could justify the use of all these puppets. 16-year-old Sarah is given 13 hours to solve a labyrinth and rescue her baby brother, Toby, when her wish for him to be taken away is granted by the Goblin King, Jareth. TriStar Pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents. Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets and Dark Crystal. Oh! Where you go with a head like that? Hmm? George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga. <laughs> and one of the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. <laughs> Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. There's nothing to be afraid of. A world where anything seems possible, and nothing is what it seems. Everything I've done, I've done for you. I move the stars with no one. I guess I didn't remember that this movie... I mean, I remember that it starred David Bowie, but I didn't remember that the other lead is Jennifer Connelly. I did know that. This so interesting. I think she, first of all, I think she is very good in the movie. And I think if she, if it was not Jennifer Connelly, if it was a league average child actor, this movie would be just like completely unwatchable. But I think you can <laughs> see her making decisions about this character like both in the beginning as much as the movie doesn't pay off her character i think you can see her as a teenager making choices um that spell out why people for the next 30 years will be like jennifer connelly underrated really good actor and this is kind of the story of her career is like ending up in like stuff like labyrinth like either really weird beloved cult things like or like, like requiem for a dream requiem and, labyrinth. And, little, and little children <laughs> or else you know once upon a time in America. Yes. Well, she, I think that was before this, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. Imagine if Peter Ostrom was in this role. <laughs> Yuck. If Peter Ostrom was in this role, it's thirty percent worse. And I'm a little bit like uh, Charlie Bucket's teacher right now because I'm not actually sure this movie can be thirty percent worse. I'm not sure the numbers work out. Yeah. I mean, I'm already. Yeah. I'm struggling to hear you prop up. You know, this movie and what, what could have been good about it. I just love... for So I really love that in the first... The first 10 minutes are actually my favorite part. Because um, you see that Jennifer Connelly is completely absorbed in this unexplained... No. Like, what? The first 10 minutes of this, like, so badly want to be a William Goldman movie where it's like, look, there's a layer on top of another layer and top of another layer. But it's not. Like, the stupid cold open of, like... This is a period movie. And then it's like, no, actually, it's a movie set in 1996. It's like, nope, actually, it's a goblin movie where there's no rules and no reality and everything's bizarre. But I think that's the only part of the movie that works, Noah. You're, you're basically seeing in this really tight camera angle where you think it's a period movie. It's Sarah who is just going about her life, mind, body and soul, reciting what I guess is a play that is ultimately the turnkey that opens up the labyrinth and summons the Goblin King. 
and she's just like this weird theater <laughs> kid who's completely in her own universe, so much so that you don't even realize the camera mimicking the fact that, that she's in the present day. And then she goes home, and like the way she talks to everyone is like, or you know, she's mad at her like Reaganite parents, um, who are just two pieces of cardboard who are like, We're gonna be out drinking till midnight. Make sure no, that- they're they're a little nicer than that. <laughs> and and they make it clear too that they try to work around her schedule when they, they want decide her to, to go date, out. And she shouldn't As have like to. a newly married person, you should sympathize with the fact that the this couple post kids just like wants to have you know, some some excitement left in their marriage. I totally sympathize with the parents. <laughs> I I'm hate a, you. I'm more, <laughs> more of a Goblin King sympathizer myself, but... Um, oh, Goblin King for life, man. No, that, I don't actually feel that way. That was a joke. Um, but I think Connolly knows that she's playing this weird girl for whom, like, the veil between fantasy and reality is bizarre. And, and Henson doesn't... Henson is in too weird of a mood or a headspace to actually do the William Goldman thing where he's like, there are these two worlds. It's we're just like so close up to Sarah where it's just like she already lives in a fantasy world and whoops, one step to the left and now she's in it for real. Um, I think that's where Conley's at her best. The rest of it, it's in such a hurry to get somewhere that it does. There's you do not need to be in a hurry to get to the middle hour of this movie now let me ask you this and this is going to be a big swelteringly hot take i hope with the heat in portland right now you are going to be we've already able to both sweat through our tank tops so be careful if you read this whole movie as an allegory for a young woman discovering what an orgasm is does it make a little bit more sense Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Evidence one is the name of all the songs that David Bowie sings in this movie. One, Chili Down. Okay, maybe not like quite there yet. (laughs) Second one, As the World Falls Down, Getting Lower, Within You, number three, Underground, number four. I didn't understand Within You. What's the euphemism there? And then, number five, the climactic song, Magic Dance. That's it. Slap the baby. Yeah, slap the baby. Absolutely. Who among us? Each wall is like a new secret, and it isn't quite what it seemed. It's not like how she pictured it. And she's like, got to trust this guy to like take care of the baby. Are you saying that the labyrinth is... I think this is like a psychosexual film in the most Jim Henson way possible. But and I don't think I'm like out of bounds here because most of the reviews that I read, the ones that liked it all referenced a, this like the allegory being a woman coming of age. I think that part is undeniable. I think um, specifically but, an orgasm might be a little narrow. And I am now passing out from the hotness of that take. <laughs> I do... She wakes up at night, cold sweat, suddenly everything's released, uh, and her baby brother's back and everything's great. That's right. And a lot of people's first times, there are just dozens and dozens of cockney trolls all around kind of rooting on the proceedings. That's, it's just a terrible like, like, uh, like nocturnal emission dream chance. <laughs> 
God bless you for bringing this to the table because I just didn't have a whole lot to say about the puppetry and production design. So um, I'm willing to. As Gene Siskel once said, (laughs) "What an unbelievable waste of talent and resources this movie is." You texted me that when I was like ten minutes in, and I was like, "Gene, (laughs) why are you in a bad mood all the time?" Gene, R.I.P. And then like thirty minutes in, I was like, "Ah, Gene's totally right. This is not great." (laughs) But it's really one of those movies like Legend that we watched around Halloween that it's just like, yeah, I I see like the amount of costumes there are and I like see the amount of puppets and special effects there are. And I like see you playing with early green screen industrial light and magic. But like, what's the story here? Like what's it's really just a girl like wandering around this maze encountering not the typical Henson puppets, but puppets who look a little bit grosser than that. And then like her having the standoff with, with David Bowie, who's been kind of dancing his way through the David Bowie discography here. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I think legend's better than this movie. Oh. Mm. You disagree with that? You're talking, about, you're talking about scorching hot takes. I think legend is so incredible to look at i mean it's so immersive in just the stupidest way possible i don't think this movie looks very good even when it's just like david bowie dancing with puppets it's like all those puppets are standing still like why is this directed this way right no it looks like when feist goes to visit sesame street or something exactly it's it's She's still on Sesame Street. You don't believe that she's like transcended some other dimension and now these puppets are real. Like, you know what's happening. Yeah. I don't see why maybe this is, I mean, because this is from the George Lucas of it all, like some obsession with the Ewoks or something where it's like people fucking fucking love that. Like, I bet we can do a whole movie where people love the love the puppets. I don't I don't know, man. I don't. I don't I've never really said or thought like this creative endeavor should have more puppets. Have you not? I, I don't know. I, I can't think of a context where I've sought more puppets from something. Like I'm not a, a person for whom Avenue Q was like a big thing. You know, I what gave about- up on Sesame Street like at an appropriate age and moved on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any room in here for like a Count Sings Feist thing? Because you brought it up where he's like, one, two, three, four, tell me. <laughs> okay. Um, there, it turns out there was room because who fucking cares? Um, I don't think. Here's, but then my, a, here's a take. I do remember. You want to talk about orgasms more? My penis troll looking up at me and saying, if you ever need me, I'll be right here. Call me conservative. <laughs> I don't think the penis troll should be the main character of this film. Why is Hoggle? Yes. Why is Hoggle given? Oh, Hoggle's the penis troll. What did you think the penis troll was? I thought that you were making the argument that this was like more of like a big mouth kind of thing, where yeah. like the main, like David Bowie's like. The penis. Oh. Like he's like the sexual urges or something. I'm sorry I misunderstood. Um, but you literally meant the one that resembled like a phallus because of his weird nose. Yes. And his troll-like yeah. qualities. 
not um, Hogwart. Did you think that when it was like she misnames him and she's like, slow down, Hogwart? Like, do you think that's where JK was just like, what if we call this school Hogwarts? I think that's probably it. Do you really think it was Labyrinth? Without Labyrinth, it would be called like Wizard School? Yeah. <laughs> no, Hoggle is given all the decision. A puppet, a puppet called Hoggle is given all of the important decisions in the movie, Noah. What is that about? Yes. I don't know, because it ultimately gives Hoggle... Yeah, he, he like becomes the most important character, and it's him reconciling sort of like the t- uh, the lion from The Wizard of Oz. Like, oh, he's a coward, and he always, like, when faced with dire circumstances, will always, like, sell out the person he's with. Yeah. Uh, and then by the end, maybe learns his the error of his ways, whatever. Um, but yeah, it really, Jennifer Connelly doesn't have a ton to do other than like, we have to cross this bridge. We have to jump across this mountain range. We have to do whatever. Maybe this is a preview of my Tomorrowland review, but yeah, this movie just oh, doesn't my. work on like any literal level at all. Like right. the, uh, the, well, the literal, the literal actions of the film are, She's such a self-absorbed theater kid that she's like, this baby won't stop crying. I hate babysitting. Send him, send him, send him away because that's. I wish a goblin would come and take him. Because <laughs> that, well, I thought of that because that's the play that I'm already reading twenty four seven, and then the Goblin King does, and she's like, well, I didn't mean it, and then she yeah. goes and finds the baby, and it's over. What is and that? He's like, Just dance. <laughs> uh. No, I think the problem that all three of these movies come up against is the kid protagonist is just like this character that asks a million questions because they like don't know what's going on. Like that's one of the constructs here is that like annoying kid being like, Grandpa, should we drink that? You know, or which way is it? Or where am I? What is this magnet or what does this pin do? Like, whatever it happens to be. Like, mm-hmm. so much so that Tomorrowland will get into it, but, like, has a moment where, like, the one of the supporting characters literally passes out because she's asking too many questions. Yes. Um, so I think it's a little bit more aware of the device there. But, yeah. So I think Jennifer Connelly kind of falls into that camp of, like, we get it. You don't know where you are. Okay? It's a big maze, and it's not fair. All right? Let's keep, let's keep the story moving. I like that she plays the bafflement of it. Like the again, the the riddle, the riddle rules of the universe are very repetitive and not very interesting. Like everyone she runs into is like a kind of a dumb sphinx. Um, but I do and doesn't like, help her, yeah. And I do like, but I do like watching her figure it out. Where like she meets those kind of like ups, those uh, real life like jacks from the playing cards puppets, and she's like, one of us lies and one of us always tells the truth, and she's just kind of like. Which one is which? <laughs> she's just so baffled. She's like, can I just ask this? I liked that responsiveness from her. Yes. Do any of the puppets do anything for you? Was anyone memorable? No, they were all like kind of brown. I did like the eyeballs that were like growing out of the initial brick wall. I thought that was a cool thing. And I yeah. thought like that's a better use of the puppetry where you know, it's, it's more like found than it's less like here's puppets sword fighting or something. Right. Oh my God. Um, the action scene at the end is such an eye roll. Yeah. That did nothing for me at all. I really liked the abominable snowman. Ludo. Ludo, the Yeti. Yeah. Yeah. He bad smell. Big and cuddly. 
my God. I love the idea of having like the the worst place you could be is like the the interminable smell bog. The interminable right. stench bog. I like when David Bowie is just like roasting the puppets and he says to Hoggle, <laughs> if she kisses you, I'll make you a prince. And Hoggle goes, really? And he goes, yeah, prince of the eternal stench. <laughs> Uh, he's got uh, great jokes. Uh, well, I don't know if that's How true, is, but I do like it. This I'm gonna I'm gonna tip my hand a little bit early. Uh, how did they get David Bowie attached to something so stupid? Because I think it seems interesting. Like I mean, I've been interested in this movie ever since I saw the poster and learned about it. I'm like, I bet he's having a ton of fun. I bet it's both kind of like deep and silly at the same time. Like a lot of David Bowie's sort of outward costuming um i get it but there's just uh not a lot of there 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 is not a ton of there there uh it's an interesting watch it looks expensive uh but there's also a lot of bad green screen too like when she encounters like the the beach boy birds and like they're oh throwing their heads around but it it, it looks like I mean, it's it's just the worst sort of, I don't know. The background doesn't look like that's where they are. You know what other simple thing occurred to me in the midst of like just being kind of like, oh, I'm sort of bummed out that I don't like this. Um, and a basic construction level is uh, labyrinths are labyrinths. They're repetitive. They all look the same. They're They're hard to distinguish one thing from the next, right? So especially compared to Willy Wonka where every room has all of these gags and brandings and hijinks by the time you're 40 minutes into this movie you're just like oh look more fucking maze uh but like <laughs> yeah, that's fucking labyrinth that's so baked into the movie labyrinth there's not much to be done about that so i right. that's where i'm like this was flawed from the beginning and this one also like the songs don't feel like they're super justified in the story no they're it's just like david, david bowie has to sing Right. It's like he's contractually obligated or something. It'll and it, it cuts it literally cuts back and forth from Jennifer Connolly like interacting with some puppet and like not figuring out how to get to the castle at the center of the labyrinth. And then it cuts back to the castle at the center of the labyrinth where David Bowie's jumping around this studio with a bunch of fucking puppets. His contract says minimum two songs, minimum twenty pound cod piece. That to me is the magic dance. <laughs> I hate to be this guy, Chance. You know I love to love movies that other people love only because they saw them as children. Unfortunately... (laughs) This movie is a bad, bad. Yeah. It's it's not especially... I, I mean, yes, it's made with like the latest technology of 1986, but to what end, Chance? To what end? You could not then, find a more cutting-edge chimney sweep troll puppet than the ones they made. Exactly. If that's what you want to see, like, fine. Check it out. Um, but then it's not that entertaining because the story's not there, and it's clearly just like things put together it's like bowie plus ewoks plus lord of the rings or something and 
not yeah. memorable. Not a lot. Not enough differentiation. And not like even campy fun. Like maybe Legend was. Maybe not. I think I argued that <laughs> Legend famously, you were like, Chance is just going to say this is a phantasmagoria. And then I was like, it's a phantasmagoria of Ridley Scott Cologne commercial. I missed, I missed the Ridney, the Ridley Scott uh, Cologne aesthetics. Uh, this did not look good. Uh, by Tim the time Curry is the darkness also a sexual. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah no, I, I, believe I me, we love to, we love to hand out a bad good. Uh, but this oh, is a bad bad. It's our favorite. It this is our fortunately. It is our favorite report card to hand out, but this one no. No, it's a bad bad. No, invite me to Tomorrowland, would you? Whew. Tomorrowland, twenty fifteen, bound by a shared destiny. Cool. I don't. That's that's a tough <laughs> way to start. Bound by a shared destiny, a teen bursting with scientific curiosity and a former boy genius Another orgasm movie. It is. Embark on a mission to unearth the secrets of a place somewhere in time and space that exists in their collective memory. That is like the most roundabout way of saying, like a young girl comes under the tutelage of an inventor who claims to have found another dimension where Utopia exists, and it's run by House. Yeah. Every second that ticks by, the future is running out. Newton? That's not mine. What's not yours? The pen. I've never... What if there was a place? Dad, I just need you to look at this. Does it look weird? A secret place. Nothing was impossible. Can I say this? Casey, stop it! Go away! Did you see the dog? Cool. I want you to take me there. Take you where? Where'd you get this? Who are you, kid? Did they just start with the the park, Tomorrowland as the basis for this? Well, the yes. So this starts with the IP of Epcot, where they wanted to, like, look at the origin story of the Tomorrowland feature thereof. That, of course, celebrates inventors and inventions, and apparently the there's age. also. The Atomic Age. And apparently there was also at one point the notion that Epcot would kind of link off to an actual incubator that Disney would throw money at for actual inventions to be made. And that would be like an attraction of the park. And this kind of plays with that origin story. Because as you can see from the opening of this film... They are at the World's Fair, and it's a Disney ride they get onto that teleports them to this other dimension. Yeah, that's where little George Clooney goes in 1964. With his, with his fucking jetpack. With his jetpack. And House is like, does it work? And little George is like, no, but it's fun. It's strange, Charlie, but it's fun! And House is like, that's not, that's not what we're doing here. Um, right. But then he briefly is swept into Tomorrowland um, where he falls in puppy love 
with what's this robot's name? Athena, played by Rafi Cassidy. Yes. Doesn't know she's an it's android so, though. Right. It's so funny how I was like piecing together in my mind like how to pitch this in a room. And I was like, oh, it's Willy Wonka meets Ex Machina, but by the director of, or by the writer of Watchmen, uh, the series. And the director of Iron Giant. Yeah, that's how you make it a children's film. Um, Yes, it's, it's it's all of those things. It's like robot love story. It's like powerful men, like playing with fate and destiny because of some vision that they had, you know, kind of movie. You know, I mean, going all the way back to like Captain Nemo or some shit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this. So yeah, th- there's the part. There's there's the prologue of the movie where they're back in time. They're in sixties. You know, I thought it was pretty incredible that like Disney didn't have the foresight to put like, uh, like uh, Robert the uh, Tony Stark's dad. What's his name? Ned Stark. No, nah, I don't know who you mean. Robert Downey Sr. Yeah, the, no, the the John Slattery Stark that like oh, shows, sometimes okay. shows up in the flashbacks <laughs> when like there's an MCU movie in the past. Anyway, it was amazing to me that Disney could like hold off from doing that. Anyway, but yeah, there's this prologue in the '60s, and then we jump to like now uh, here in the real world. Uh, yeah. Pearl, that's weird. and I gotta say, I think there was trouble the second that Britt Robertson was cast. As. She is unfortunately just not very good. Is she on Casey Riverdale? Newton. No, I don't think so. But she was uh, in the John- Nicholas Sparks classic uh, alongside Clint Eastwood's son, uh, The Longest Ride. Oh yeah, another film about masturbation. Is <laughs> that true? Is it? That the longest ride by <laughs> Nicholas Sparks is not about. A woman coming into her sexual own. I'm sorry, Chance. It is, I'm afraid it is. <laughs> <laughs> What's Dear John about? It's about a young woman coming of age sexually, uh, probably in a small, rustic town. And then what? a misunderstood tradesperson comes into her life. What's memorable about A Walk to Remember? A walk to remember is Mandy Moore, and she has cancer. But still coming into her sexual own, cancer diagnosis aside. Yeah, get a little Shane, Shane West, West going. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. All right, back to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I mean, Tomorrowland. Back to the lake house. When Sandra Bullock uh, realizes he's dead, I was just floored. All right. Um, I'm about to throw up from heat exhaustion. Let's let's get into it. Okay. Um poor Britt robertson she does not have chemistry with george clooney who plays the adult version of the i of know the kid and it's so weird because you're just like doesn't george clooney have chemistry with everyone um man or woman i when i see him like on tv in a tequila commercial i'm like he has chemistry with me right now <laughs> we're having a drink yeah, together he's got yeah he's got uh sexual chemistry with um what's Couches, his name? lamps what do you, what that, do you the father from uh it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Um, Danny DeVito? Isn't he with Danny DeVito's in those Nescafe commercials? Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, you, I like that you just described Frank Reynolds as the father from Sunny. That's uh, it's very he generous. Is. You know you're 100%. Frank Reynolds, you're 100% the right. father. Um, 
<laughs> I think uh, Peter McAllister, I think the of, father. <laughs> I think of Frank Moore as a puppet from Labyrinth, but that's cool. Um, yes. Why not just cast Danny DeVito? So she doesn't have chemistry with George, which is really unfortunate. And also the character is, um, the character is really badly written in the sense that her whole thing, right? This, this movie lays out this um, real starchy but optimistic dichotomy that we'll get into through this <laughs> anecdote that McGraw, who played Tim, Tim McGraw, um, who plays her dad, is like the world is just there's two wolves always bat always doing battle the the wolf of goodness and hope and the wolf of uh, despair and greed and you just had to pick which wolf to feed um, and this character's whole thing Casey Newton played by Britt Robinson is that she is the eternal optimist I mean she looks at NASA and she's like that's still the future um, all the bad things in the world how can we fix them there's some not very good montages about that um, but then yeah. the way she carries herself. She's so sarcastic and she's not good at it. And every other word out of her mouth is like, well, this is just great. And it's like, can we just write this character the way that you've already like half written her? Just have like her be jovial and have George growl about that. Why are they doing the same bit to each other? And they're like opposing magnets. It sucks. Yeah. Other than espousing like fifties and or sixties era, like technological aspirations. She doesn't really have a des- like any desires of any kind. No. Um, and she, yeah, has this weird tenuous, like really intense, but also really distant relationship with her father who she like does everything because of, but then doesn't really speak to except for the first scene of the movie uh, or the first sh- scene she's in. So yeah, it- it's odd to like root for her. Like it's almost like her storyline didn't, really like make it or something it's so odd to have the 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 protagonist of the film's storyline not make it it's so funny yeah it just doesn't survive to the end it's like nope sorry you fell down in the final stretch let's just go ahead and continue with Clooney's storyline right well I texted you about this while we were watching it's like this is 2015 like this movie if this idea from Damon Lindelof had like come in post WandaVision, like here's 10 episodes, dude, like do whatever you want and like dive into these people. And I think that that's like kind of my sort of weird question mark about this movie is that when does the movie start? Like, what is the movie about really? And I guess I kept waiting for her to like something to happen. And then it's like, oh, this is the movie part. Like now we're in Tomorrowlands. Right. But Tomorrowland is actually not. I almost thought they were going to end the movie without going there. Like I thought when they got to Paris, like that was it. But no, there's like another whole act. Yeah, I. You're totally right. And I'm almost I'm a an old man out of time because I just want everything to be a movie, but you're right. They have so little room to world build or rather they leave themselves so little room to actually build out the world of Tomorrowland that this ends up being like a theoretical movie. Like all the best parts of it are just theoretical questions about how, how a future world could impact the world you already know going to the future world. We barely do it. We don't really know what's going on over there. It's purely exists on the realm of ideas. 
other than that very like avatarian kind of you know scene where what's his name ends up flying on the back of that other thing and being like wow avatar world's so cool like this movie has that with you know Brit kind of running around and being like oh man you can jump from one pool out of the bottom and then yeah. the top of another pool incredible this is a utopia and then believing blindly that this is the way forward to like have this very showy sort of, you know, Elon Musk, of course they walk by a fucking Tesla station. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's like not like what what kind of government is that? Like, I guess I was skeptical immediately of how they described this world. And it's like, OK, it's full of all the elite people. And nobody else. Right. And there's no laws. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody's good. And, you know, it seemed like at least a multiracial world from the promo advertisement two-minute commercial that she stumbles through. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't seem like when we actually get to that world, it is the bright, glowing metropolis uh, city on the hill that it's supposed to be. Right. And I think that the movie, I mean, Lindelof is not an eternal optimist. Like he also knows that he's like, you know, you're one person's glowing city on a hill. Look at it from the side and it's the most fascist thing you've ever seen. Like he knows that the movie knows that it's just that you don't get to experience or explore that yourself in Tomorrowland as the viewer at all. (laughs) It's just something that's told to you. Yes, it's, it's like the, the they didn't just do any of the interesting world building through scene. They just kind of tell you about it and then have a scene where like somebody goes through the glass of a truck and like that's the scene. You know, you the know, other it, creepy, creepy thing about this, which is um, I'm not sure how keenly aware the movie is of this, but all of these 50s um, imaginary space age Jetson cities they look like um, Robert Moses maps for like his vision of New York and all American cities where there's just like skyscrapers and highways and like green space that you allegedly gather in in the day, but might get super scary at night. And there's nobody out on the street in any kind of communal sense. So I couldn't get that out of my head either with like the, the the architecture that they're extrapolating here. We actually now know to be from the last 70 years, super, super classist and racist like city planning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it is. And you know, it's, it's also not, not separate from, like the almighty dollar either. No. Like questions remain too of like, how do you pay for something like this? And I guess like the reason that I want to see this as like a Disney plus series or something is that like, You'll probably you can have that it. episode where it's like the city's, the, the alternate dimensions bankrupt and they like have to bring in Tesla as a sponsor in order to like pay for the new thing. Right. I feel like there was a piece missing of this movie where, the Tomorrowland had to be like broadcasting like negative vibes to <laughs> Earth. Yeah, that's and right. that was causing everybody to believe that climate change was happening and that we're you know it's end times because of media or something. It, it is very much like the elites. It's almost like a QAnon story where the elites are like from another dimension are controlling the monoculture to make us believe that we are dying. So much so that they've convinced themselves that we're dying and they're going to kill us. Yeah. Like the existence of this world 
doubles as like a digital tuning fork for our death drive. So oh, if you just Oh, it's like the Matrix. Yeah, I guess, but th- with the with the ability to like if you just feed the other wolf in this movie's parlance, if you just change the frequency that the tuning fork is on, all of us uh who were the thing it should be said is we're uh, very much living in the Obama era at the time. This is a distinctly second-term Obama movie. Um, uh, <laughs> we're just instantly like, oh, we won't worry about the death drive. We'll become a, a team of fixer-uppers, and we'll head to Tomorrowland, because now it's playing a G instead of a C. Yes. Which is... It's interesting, because... When you think about the sort of dictatorial cult of personality that's implied by all of these, you know, Goblin King and Willy Wonka and Governor Nix and, you know, Elon Musk, who in our modern society is more of a like, the pure imagination. Don't, I don't want to, don't make me pay my taxes because of pure imagination. I'm like, that, Willie didn't have Twitter. Right. Um, oh my God. <laughs> um, we didn't even, haven't even made fun of him, but exploitation, that'd be all over. Uh, what am I trying to say? If any of these people who are, you know, big dreamers, your, your hope is that if their aspirations and their ambitions and their emotional connections just turn progressive and, you know, charitable and optimistic in all these different ways, that things will be good. But, but I think we just know that more than often they don't. And so, like, what's do we buy this movie's ending at all? I don't know. I mean, I think those questions are, like, too goofy and big to, like, tackle in the medium here. Like, I think this guy, the guy who wrote Lost, you can't do Lost in a two-hour movie. Right. It's just, like, that's antithetical to what it's trying to be like, oh, is it purgatory? Um this one has some bigger questions that I think Lindelof was more successful in posing in HBO Watchmen. Um, but yeah, I mean, wh- what you're saying is there is like an inherent goofiness and simplicity and almost fascism to, I think, like what this movie is trying to say. I don't think you can accuse this movie of being fascist, but I think it knows that fascism is on you know, is the flip side of the coin that it's playing with, but it thinks that the good side of the coin is some kind of like, let's just get the special dreamers in there, kids. And I don't think it knows enough. I don't think it is able to interrogate, like, when you tell all of these people that they are special and they're all alienated from, like, everyone else in their lives who would be in, like, a would-be community with them. Um, it doesn't work. They just become more Willy Wonkas. I subtract points from this one because it's not a musical. Sure. The bomb will go off tomorrow. Um, <laughs> Actually, right now. Oh. Your girl. Don't we think it's a little bit weird talking about the creepiness of all three of these main dudes? Yeah. Is it a little creepy that George Clooney uh, still hung up on this 10-year-old robot girl? It's unfortunate. Not a lot of chemistry there either. Not that we can really ask for that. It's a robot. What are you going to do? Um. Yeah, I appreciate that this movie works like a Rorschach test. I mean, I do think that Hugh Laurie has this kind of like, whoo, punch in the gut speech, which is way better than sort of your average villain speech, where it's just like, I'm over here in Tomorrowland 
telling people over and over and over again that if they keep doing what they're doing, they're going to die, and every day they do the same thing. And I, as a viewer, I'm still like, fuck, yeah, I mean, that is, that's what it feels like. Every single day, we're just hurtling toward it. And you're like, yeah, I don't really want to, I can't do any, what am I supposed to do? I can't do it today. And that's what Hugh Laurie's so pissed about. And you're like, yeah, you're, you're right. That's our, that's the ultimate horrifying paradox of our existence, seemingly. Um, so I think this movie is playing with really interesting ideas that, as you said, are too big for the actual canvas that it has in front of it. And just its basic movie making character plot world building stuff is bizarrely haphazard. Um, it's, so it's, I'm, it's very, yeah, it's, it's sort of like besides the point, like yeah. giving us the movie. I know it's a theoretical movie, <laughs> but let me ask you this. What? I felt like waiting for the movie to start made it kind of compelling. I may, I may charitably say that this one is a soft, just like a, like a feather landing on the scale to bad good i think the effects are pretty cool um there are moments in this movie where it actually reminds me of the lucas star wars prequels which is almost something you can't say about like no movies look like that but there's like one there's a moment where like this train (laughs) goes over top of brit when she's in the commercial and i'm like the way the camera is getting distracted now with the the millionth cgi element of this frame is like this is this is lucas this is this is attack of the clones right here congrats yes <laughs> you did it somebody copied the prequels um i maybe this is just you and i never being totally on the same page of what the rating system is i was gonna go maybe <laughs> i was gonna go good bad because it after seems, this long buddy you don't even know what the rating system is i the think the first part is whether it's like made well and the second part is whether it was easy to watch. If all the emphasis, though, is on a discourse of ideals and theme, like those seem like those really are the technical elements of this movie. I can't right. say I enjoyed watching it. So I'm going to go good, bad by my own misdefinition. You're going to go good, bad? Yeah. I think that's them launching that space shuttle out of the Eiffel Tower was an allegory or no, an, uh, an analogy for an orgasm. <laughs> You're a very pure child, Noah. And you get to do the podcast by yourself from now on for saying that shit about orgasms. Uh, my friend, it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. This whole thing in your mind has clearly been an allegory for pleasure. So let's just... Let's just let it go, um, and I'll see you... We uh, needn't say more. No. <laughs> I, I literally can't. Um, <laughs> I'm out of fluids. <laughs> all right. We'll see you next time. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look, and you'll see into your imagination.